Good morning, gang. It is just after nine o'clock on Friday, so that means it's time for our Friday morning uh, devotion. And when I say devotion, really kind of what I mean is more of a Bible study. We're not doing something that's sort of, um, you know, uh, mini or, or small. It's, you know, we, we tend to get into the word a little bit here when we, uh, when we gather. And, uh, so, uh, glad to be here with you again as we get together for 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7. Uh, if you were with us last time, you know that uh, basically what we saw is that this is, uh, in, in uh, chapter 6, what we saw is really kind of a Christian sexual uh, ethic. It, you know, for, for lack of a better phrase, it's the ethics behind Christian sexuality. And what I noted last time was there was two basic parts to it, uh, or two basic issues that the Apostle Paul is dealing with. Uh, on the one hand, last week we saw that the Apostle Paul was dealing with an idea that was being floated around, certainly in the culture, but within the Corinthian church, that basically sex was just one of many appetites that the human being has, and just like all other appetites, we work to fill them. If we get hungry, we eat. If we get thirsty, we drink. So sexuality was seen as something like, well, if you have the urge, then go ahead and fulfill that urge. No harm, no foul. This is sort of really kind of reflective of a, of a broad view in the culture that what you did with your body, with your flesh, really wasn't that big of a deal. This was sort of early Gnostic thing, teaching that matter didn't matter or that it was evil, that what mattered was only what was inside of you, the soul. And this was not, this was not true of both Jewish thought and Christian thought. The body always was very important. And so Paul spent the last time we were together correcting that error, that sexuality was just one more appetite to be, um, satiated and said, no, 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 there's, you know, don't, don't give into sexual morality. Don't have sex with temple prostitutes. Don't, no, that's not proper. You were bought with a price, he ends up saying to the people. And what you, what you, uh, what was bought includes your body. Well, now he's going to go to an opposite extreme that also is coming into the Corinthian church, which is an ascetic view of sexuality. And again, something that you would have found common within the Greco-Roman culture. So the way that early Gnosticism kind of played out was, it doesn't matter what you do with your body, so you can either, one, be very much a libertine, or on the other hand, because it doesn't matter what you do with your body, you shouldn't really give in to its desires. You should try and live the ascetic life. And so Paul's going to address that today. So beginning at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, here's what he says. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. What this tells us is that at the same time as people were saying, it doesn't matter what you do, go have sex with whoever, there were also some who were saying, it is good for a man not to have any sexual relations with a woman. Just stay away, stay away from each other. This is a quote directly from them, probably in a letter that they sent to him. Here's what Paul's response is to that idea. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now let's just pause here for a second and note, 
Paul's argument for marriage is maybe the least romantic argument for marriage ever made in the history of ever. He does not, <laughs> there's no mention of love, there's no mention of romance, there's no mention of taking care of each other. It's literally like, okay, yeah, it's true that you shouldn't be having sexually immoral relationships with people, but because you all kind of burn with passion and you can be kind of animals when it comes to sexuality, uh, go ahead and get married so you can deal with that urge. That's literally the framing of his argument. It's like, yeah, you should get married so you don't end up sleeping with other people. It's very, very dispassionate and frankly, uh, very surprising to what we would tend to be used to hearing, especially in a lot of modern uh, Christian circles in regard to the family and marriage. He continues saying something that would have been very scandalous in the very early days of the church and frankly, very scandalous uh, in that culture. He says, quote, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Well, that was obvious to everybody then. Of course, of course, the husband is, is the leader of the home and whatever he wants from his wife, he gets. This was the assumed idea. Ah, but then he says this, and this is the shocker. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That was scandalous back in that time. The idea that the wife had any rights whatsoever really was pretty scandalous, let alone that Paul says the wife has rights over her husband's body, that she has a say in this relationship too, was very, very abnormal, both in Jewish culture and in Greco-Roman culture. And here we start to see the unique role that Christianity plays in um, in discussions about equal rights, in discussions about male and female relations, Christians are saying things that just weren't being said. And what is the grounding for that? What's the reason for this equality? Well, it goes back to the fact that everybody stands at on level ground at the foot of the cross. Whether male or female, all are still in need of the same Savior. And this creates a framework by which discussions of equality between male and female and different ethnicities can begin to come to pass. Yes, in some cases it takes a long time within the church's history, but it was this framework that led to those things. Paul goes on, verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, folks, I want you to just pay very close attention here. This is saying what you think it is saying. Paul is saying to couples that are married, I'm going to just be blunt here, have sex all the time. Have sex regularly. Be intimate regularly. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time to pray. He says, you might, you know, agree, all right, we're going to take a break because we really want to just be devoted to prayer. But then he even says again, but come together fairly quickly so that Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you see how Paul here doesn't have a very high, he doesn't have a very high anthropology when it comes to human beings' ability to control their sexual desires, 
He's like, yeah, you can take a break to pray, but if you take too long of a break, Satan might use that as a way to get you tempted to go out and sleep with somebody else. That's what he's saying. This is his argument, folks. Again, not very romantic, but utterly practical. He continues, verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. And I think he's referencing all that he's just said. I'm, I'm saying this as a concession to you. Why does he say that? Verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. What Paul means there is Paul himself is single and apparently has been given some uh, gift of celibacy, the ability to live out that life. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul does wish that everybody could, frankly, live with enough self-control that they could stay single and not give in to their sexual desires. And he'll go on later to explain why, because the single person has more time to be devoted to the ministry and can uh, can really just, just focus on that. They don't have all of the different distractions and, frankly, responsibilities that come with having a spouse and having children. But Paul knows that that's not practical for the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people will end up being married or need to be married. He writes this, verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, Paul's argument for marriage, not very romantic. It's just like, hey, if you can't control your desire to have sex, then find a spouse. That's Paul's dispassionate argument here. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Pretty pretty standard teaching within the scriptures. He doesn't want couples to separate. God honors marriage and loves marriage and created the institution of marriage and wants it to, wants it to thrive and to flourish. And yet, something strange happens right after this. Paul says, verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. This is a very strange formulation. I know that we have all heard, of course, that all of the Bible is the Word of God. And yet, it's also important to recognize that even as God has established this as his Word, these are letters written by real men to real people. Paul is writing a letter. And in this, he says, basically, I'm going to give you some counsel here. I don't have, I don't have God authoritatively saying this to me, but I'm just giving you some counsel based on what I think is best in this situation. That's what he means when he says to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. This is his counsel. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now this is, um, this was also something that was a, a very common question in the early days. I'm married to, a, I've been married for, let's say, 20 years. I've become a Christian. My spouse is not a Christian. Does that mean that I need to find a new spouse that is a Christian? Paul says, no. Paul says, no, stay with that person. 
Stay with that person if they want to stay with you. Folks, I have seen and heard many stories of people that were married to people that did not believe. And sometimes, uh, rather quickly, what ended up happening, praise be to God, is that due to the spouse's influence, or at least partially due to the spouse's influence, the unbelieving spouse became a Christian themselves. I've seen it. I have also seen people that have been married to an unbelieving spouse for decades who have faithfully prayed for that unbelieving spouse, who have faithfully brought them before the throne of God, asking that God would convert them, and even through decades of discouragement when them, with them still rejecting, have eventually come to see that prayer be answered and their unbelieving spouse become a Christian. This is Paul's framework for why they should, they should stay together. And of course, also, like, hey, you might have a really great marriage. You might have a really loving marriage. Don't, don't uh, end the marriage just because you have become a Christian. No, like, go deeper into it. Be a great spouse as a Christian. And then Paul says this. Here's, here's his rationale. For the unbelieving husband is made holy or set apart because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, I don't think this is saying that just because one is married to a Christian, they suddenly are seen as Christians themselves. But I do think the way that the word holy is being used here is that, well, they're in sort of a special place because of the connection that they have to this believing spouse, that they're going to have access in special ways to the word of God that others might not have because of the closeness of this relationship. And then Paul makes this very strange statement. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does that mean? Well, I think it's two things. I think, uh, number one, Paul is making the statement that children of believing parents, even if it's just one believing parent, are indeed set apart in a special way because, again, they have access to the word of God. But also, um, because we know from the earliest records of the church that children of believing parents were brought to be baptized in their very earliest days, Paul, I think, here is making the case that even if one of their parents is not a believer, because the other parent is a believer and has brought that child to the Lord in baptism, that they are indeed still considered holy, even if both their parents are not uh, of the faith. He continues, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul is very practical here. Very practical. He says, I want you to stay together. Don't separate. Don't divorce if you can help it. On the other hand, if your unbelieving spouse doesn't want you, doesn't want to be married to somebody of the faith or wants to leave you, well, you're free to allow that to happen. You don't have to fight it. Again, I, I think Paul's goal is still for the marriage to stay intact as much as it can be, but Paul also recognizes that isn't always the way it goes. It's not always the way it goes. So wrapping up here, uh, talking about the Christian ethic of sexuality in this passage at both the end of 1 Corinthians 6 and the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, it's pretty clear. On the one hand, Paul says, no, 
You shouldn't be going out and having sex with just whoever just to get rid of the urge. No, that's not a proper use of your body, not a proper use of sexuality. On the other hand, Paul doesn't say that means that no sex is allowed at all. No, he says lots of sex, actually, just within the context of the proper relationship, the relationship of marriage. That's the, uh, that's the big idea. And so, yes, sexuality is a gift. It's good, and it is, it is proper, proper to uh, engage in intimacy like that with the spouse all the time. Yes, it is a gift, and it's good. It's just meant to be used in a certain context, in a certain way, meant to be shared with the person that God has united you to in that bond of marriage.